Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Creative Diaries. Today I'm here with Sid Singh. Hey, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. So we actually did this episode in Edinburgh. God, it was such a good episode, but we did it outside. I remember I thought <laughs> that there would be a street ambience to Edinburgh podcasts, and I was wrong because I could hardly hear it, and I was so devastated when I went home and listened. So thanks <laughs> sure. so much for doing it again. No problem. So yeah, I'd like to start again with all the things I asked you last time. You know, what was your earliest memory getting into comedy uh my earliest memory was well so i i would say i'm i'm in that weird group where i have two start dates i feel like i started comedy earnestly for real when i was 21 however when i was 15 i also did stand up which i think is just like a very american thing where it's more acceptable to have children try stand up i started at 15 because i would do these cultural events that all the indian kids in my community would do where it was like a dance showcase, and because I was so bad at dancing and hated it so much, they let me host the events, which is, I think, where I got to like try stand-up for the first time. And then at 21, I, I did it for real. So how did that one when you were 15 go? Did you have a positive or negative experience walking away from it? Well, y- looking back, I think it, it was so different. I, one of the reasons I don't count it is I, I <laughs> certainly wasn't really doing my own jokes. I basically took a bunch of jokes I had just heard from Wanda Sykes and tried to tell them from my own perspective. So she had a joke that was all about how uh, no one ever looks you in the eye when they tell you how much they think having children is worth it. And I just used to do a joke about how adults never look us in the eye when they tell us we did a good job dancing, something like that. And I just remember it did very well. And people thought I was cool that I did it until I had to congratulate the dancers. And I couldn't pronounce any of their names in an Indian <laughs> enough way. So I had a thick American accent. And it just, I mean, they had they were so angry. Uh, all the parents were so angry. <laughs> I was oh, like, wow. Uh, but uh, um, you think that they get it if you couldn't look at them in the eye when you're pronouncing their <laughs> name? <laughs> yeah, it, it was uh, uh, it was interesting. It's really interesting. Did you watch a lot of comedy growing up? Yes, yes. We had uh, Comedy Central became Channel ninety nine where I grew up, and we only had like thirty channels or whatever. So that was the one I sort of gravitated to when I was old enough to understand what was happening. Who were your favorite comedians? So my father was a huge fan of George Carlin. And Jerry Seinfeld. So I got to meet the, uh, uh, just learn about those comics early on. And then Bill Cosby from The Cosby Show. It's funny because it's so much of it, you know, you're like, oh, I like this comic. And it's like, well, we found out he's a terrible person now. And you're like, that is true. And I should stop listening to him. But I can't, you know, help but admit that I did listen to them back in the yeah, day. Yeah, it must be weird. I, I mean, I used to listen when I was. I think 12 to Mm -hmm. Chris Brown before everything happened. And then it's not something I would say now, but then these people had an impact on you growing up. Absolutely. I mean, you know, for for me, I I always feel like Bill Cosby, you know, after listening to like Carlin and, and, and watching my dad watch Seinfeld, 
being introduced to Bill Cosby was proof that minorities could do stand-up, and that was such a big deal. And then listening to Chris Rock was proof that uh, minorities could do stand-up and they could talk about anything. Yeah. You know, whereas Cosby sort of kept his comments to a very specific spectrum of topic. And then Russell Peters, I remember, was a big deal for me because he proved that Indians could do stand-up. And then Aziz Ansari was proof that they didn't just have to talk about being Indian or being Asian and what that's like. They could talk about what their own personal experiences were. And I related to that. And then Hari Kondabolu sort of showed me that you kind of blend both of them. So I feel like that was my comedy progression in terms of people I I learned the most from. And did you watch a lot of comedy from overseas, like here, Ireland? Oh, not at all. (laughs) I recently got kicked out of a green room with Eddie Izzard in it. What? Because uh, people thought I was trying to take a picture of him. But in reality, I was trying to take a picture of something much dumber, which was that there was a Connect Four board there. And I was trying to take a picture of that. And Who are you I, sending this Connect Four board to? <laughs> uh, uh, the P- <laughs> I, in Edinburgh, I will play Connect Four with some of my friends. So I was yeah. going to send it to them. And that sounds just as dumb as... It is in reality, but they were like, oh, you can't be taking a picture of Eddie Izzard. And, you know, <laughs> I felt guilty because my honest reaction was like, I barely know who that guy is. Yeah. I am aware he's an amazing comedian. I am. Sh- I have no doubt that he's an amazing comedian, but I, I don't I don't uh, I've never really gotten to listen to most of his stuff. No, I know what you mean, because I was a massive fan of him for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And then in Edinburgh, I was sitting on this couch. Someone got up and said, see you tomorrow. And I looked up, and it was Eddie Izzard. I was, he was dressed as a woman. I hadn't actually looked. I hadn't noticed, mm-hmm. and which is shocking. When you see someone you know, could you pick them out of a lineup? <laughs> you know. Well, I, yes, I remember uh, he had great boots on. I give him a lot of credit for very stylish boots. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, uh, he is now my forever rival, <laughs> <laughs> and I will not rest until I can kick him out of my own sound check. Oh, that would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> It'll never happen, uh, <laughs> which is fine. When you say you properly got into comedy when you were 21, what was that like? And uh, how did you get into comedy at 21? Um, so I was a pre-med major in college. So that's, you know, medicine or whatever. And uh, I hated it. And I used to drive an hour and a half to San Diego to hang out with my friends and just get wasted. <laughs> <laughs> they had they had the booze and I was demoralized and I used to uh, just just show up there and then they lived across the street from a comedy club and one of them dared me to do it once we both turned twenty one and so I just sort of uh, gave it a shot and then now at thirty one ten years later uh, I'm still doing it. What is it like when you got on stage? Do you have a specific feeling? Are you nervous before and then? You're proud of yourself for doing it. What What is it you like about performing? Uh, I am nervous before. Generally, once I get on stage, however, I feel this sense of relief. Uh, I think this is a very common sensation, but like, you know, someone who was nerdy as a child or someone who didn't always fit in, stand-up can be your way to connect to people in a way where by making them laugh, you can make them understand you in a way you struggle to offstage. Okay. And you perform quite a lot of political comedy, or you talk about your own life experiences. Sure. Why did you decide to draw on that aspect of your life? Uh, when I started out, it it just was a it was a way to keep yourself unique. Talk about your own life because no one else can, and therefore, like I remember when I was starting comedy, the whole Carlos Mencia thing was huge about how he was stealing jokes. 
and how Robin Williams decades prior had stolen jokes, and it was this whole thing that everyone talked about constantly. I don't. In in hindsight, it it was overblown, but at the time it was this great big fear, and so the idea was always the more personal you can make your comedy, the more unique it becomes by default. So if you care about something enough to strongly believe in it, chances are less people will. And what was your what has your response been like for your most recent show, American Refugee? It's been good. It's very interesting because stand up is a constantly humbling business in the sense that I went to Edinburgh and every show sold out or filled up or whatever. There were no empty seats. Uh, and that was lovely. And then I just did a mini run in New York, and that was really great. And those sold out uh, by the end. And then come back to London, and it's been harder to book book uh, book it. But that is just part of it. You know, I'm I'm going on this mini tour now in the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and where's Budapest? Romania. No. Where is it? No comment. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Hey, listen, where the fuck Budapest is? I'm going there. Yeah, Hungary, isn't it? Is it hungry? It, yeah. it is hungry. Well, um, I'm a dumbass. Uh, no, I stopped. I stopped doing geography when I was fourteen. So oh part boy. of me there just went, "Oh shit!" I've never felt more American. Uh, <laughs> but I said something like that wrong. Budapest, <laughs> hungry. Yes, that's true. I'm dumb. I, I I I said Romania because I was trying very hard to not reveal that I can't pronounce the names of some of the cities I am booked for in the Czech Republic. Yeah. I do think that's understandable. Uh, Brno is one of them, and Olomok is one of them, but I don't know if those, that's how either is pronounced. I pronounce everything with my accent, and I use it as an excuse all the time. It's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how do you fund... Well, this is a bit of a personal question. Do you fund these trips off performing comedy? Yes. Wow. <laughs> that is, that's actually pretty amazing. No, that's what you're supposed to do. I know, but that's the ideal for a lot of people. Like, you know, oh, if I could only work enough to pay rent, or you know mm-hmm. what I mean? From interviewing people, now that I'm starting stand-up comedy, it seems a bit like, geez, I won't be paid for three or four years. Yeah, I've been doing it 11. So uh, <laughs> there is, or I guess this is my 11th year of comedy. I've, I've completed 10, I suppose. It is this, it is this thing of that's just always going to be part of it. It seems easier to make money quicker in the UK than it is in America. Yeah. You regularly see people with two or three years of experience getting agency, whereas in America, you're not really going to get one until about eight, nine, ten years. And yeah. um, I mean, I know I, I'm currently writing for TV and I still can't get a writing agent. But that's I mean, that's just the career we choose. Did you go to Edinburgh last year? I did. Yeah. What was it like the difference between this year and last year? Uh, it was night and day, to be honest. I um, I had a show I was proud of two years ago as well, but it was about something that it seemed like it wasn't in the zeitgeist as much. The funny thing is, now everyone talks about it. But I was talking about how tech companies are corrupting the world and we need to learn to hate the owners of them. So Google, Facebook, all that stuff. Yeah. And at the time, even though the 2016 election that just happened, I think people were still sort of coming around to accepting that, especially in Europe. And now the funny thing is if I had, if I had switched the order of the shows, they would have worked just as well. Because uh, this year I did a show about refuge- the refugee crisis and my role as a lawyer in it, which I think was made the show easier to do this year because it was in the zeitgeist. There was something people were talking about and it's one something people wanted to learn about. And the reception's been good so far? It's been good, yeah. I, I, It's one of those things. I think as a stand-up, you're always wishing you were booked more or booked by the people who are quote-unquote cool. And it's a <laughs> constant battle with your ego to remember that that doesn't actually matter. Because last year when I met you in London, it seemed like you were gigging all the time. Mm-hmm. So it's surprising that you say that this year it's not been as much. Well, so the weird thing is I am still gigging most nights, it, but that's the New Yorker in me. So I'll gig anywhere. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, 
Uh, last night I performed to a crowd of six people, and it was a great place to work out 15 minutes of new jokes. Uh, so it, it's just a constant battle of, oh, okay, this this worked well, this went well. Now what will it lead to? Stand-up is a career that is stressful. <laughs> Oh, I can only imagine sure. at the moment. Anyway. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to learn a bit more about is your writing process. Uh-huh. So I was struck when I saw your show in Edinburgh about the storytelling aspect of American Refugee. And I was wondering how you pick a topic and then make an hour long show about it. What is your process or do you just go and try different things at smaller venues? Uh, I am a big proponent of trying different things. I try to have like, you know, the show you saw was maybe my sixth solo show. So I have some idea of how to assemble them now but it is um it's just a constant experimentation i uh i always feel bad for the people who are watching me on day one of the time i the first time i ever do the show because it's going to be rough okay (laughs) and i'm very comfortable bombing the first time i ever do a show because i feel like if you're not trying out these avenues it'll never become great if you always go safe it'll never be great and that's Hopefully what the art is for. In this. How would you describe the last 10 years of comedy? I mean, uh, that's a very difficult sense? question. Yeah. I wanted to know just a bit about your career progression. Because obviously now you've mentioned that you studied law as well. Mm-hmm. I want to learn a bit more about when you kind of said, no, I'm going to do this full time. And also how you knew it was right for you when you actually did decide to do it. Has there been moments where the instability you've thought, oh, I should have become a lawyer? No, the from the start, the moment I went on stage at 21, I knew it was the life for me. My parents, however, were very nervous. So when I was starting out, I lived in San Diego for a year, then I went to New York for four. And for those four years in New York, my, just, my parents were very stressed out, and you could see it affecting their health and all that stuff. And finally, they just asked me to do something a little bit more secure. So I went to law school in order to placate their fears. But at ultimately, you know, and, and I was very scared at the time because I was leaving New York and I worried that people would think I had quit comedy, which, <laughs> fun fact, a lot of them did. Uh, or they just thought I was doing it at smaller shows I didn't hear about, uh, which is also very common in New York. My biggest fear was if I went to law school, could I still do stand-up every single day? And I was very lucky. I went to a big enough city, San Francisco, where I was able to do stand-up every single day and still try to maintain a law school schedule. Uh, But the thing I had going for me was that I didn't care if I... I was like the only law student who didn't care if he got A's in class or not. I was just trying to pass. And then, you know, I was also lucky that the law school I went to, UC Hastings, is a great uh, school for public service. And you can learn a lot about that and meet a lot of amazing people and work for them and volunteer for them and stuff like that. So I got to learn a lot without sacrificing my comedy career, which is very important to me. You're probably one of the more experienced comedians I've interviewed so far. And I was thinking, has comedy changed a lot in the last 10 years? Uh, It really hasn't. I think the thing that people have to remember is that you're generally performing to an audience of people who are in their 20s. And they are constantly going to be newer to comedy than the comedians themselves. Which means that, you know, there's this term in comedy called hack. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Nope. Uh, so the term hack <laughs> is is used for any joke that is considered a very old joke that anyone could have told. So comedians hate the term hack. They never want to be associated with the term hack. If a comedian is doing a bunch of easy jokes, they are labeled hack and criticized by the comedy community. However, the the issue is the reason why there are so many hacks out there is because most audience members still have not heard the joke. If you're going on stage and talking about how men and women are different, there are going to be audience members who have never thought of it in those terms before and will laugh really loud. And that's the biggest issue with Hack is that Hack works because, you know, in the last 10 years of comedy, although there have been 
superficial changes in terms of the words you can and cannot use. For the most part, it hasn't changed at all. Hmm. What do you mean by superficial changes? Well, just in the sense of like, I think as people become more knowledgeable about the world around them and about the things that are hurtful to people, they're less likely to bring up topics that are uh, triggering yeah. in, a, in a way that is mean for no other reason than to be mean. And, and you, know, you know, there's a lot of... It's it's the whole thing about comics complaining about woke culture. To to me, it's uh, such a waste of time because if you can't keep up and write new jokes, why were you doing this in the first place? That's how I see it. Did you have early on a couple of bad bombing experiences? I still do. What are you talking about? I've been doing this 11 years. <laughs> what is your worst bombing experience? Been? Oh, so many. Uh, I think if you're not bombing, you're not taking chances. So, you know, now I might bomb a lot less than I did when I started, but... Sometimes you just have to go up there with an idea and see what happens. The worst I've ever bombed, uh, I talk about this in my album, which you can uh, buy if you're listening. And by buy, I mean you can listen to for free on Spotify. You have an album? Yes, I do. Uh, thank you for the research. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> What's it called? It's called Amazing Probably, and it's an hour or 70 minutes of stand-up that you can get on Spotify. Um, That's so cool. And uh, I actually tell the story of the worst ever gig I've ever done in Birmingham, which was seven years ago now. Wow, seven, yeah, six or seven years ago now. And uh, I tell a story about that, um, so I won't spoil it here. Okay, don't. But I will admit, the weirdest thing is I just got booked for another gig by that producer, which if you listen to the story and the stand-up special, you'll know I was not expecting. Okay. And it's going to be very, uh, I have no idea what to expect. Hmm, I think anyway, from different bombing experiences, the worst thing's you know, you expect to do well or don't do well, even in my limited experience acting. But the worst thing is when you do something kind of like you trip or you mm-hmm. spill something. Or, you know, do you have any of those? Of course. Uh, <laughs> I, to, you know, the, to me, the, the worst part is that for an audience, they might not see a lot of art. So the worst part is when you mess up and their assumptions are built on televised specials that have takes and editing. So... I remember I did two gigs. One was a very highly paid corporate gig. And the one before that was a glorified open mic that didn't pay anything. Uh, And I showed up to the open mic, which was the first gig, wasted. Just blackout drunk. And I did jokes because they had booked me for it. So I was like, fine, I'll show up. Even though you're not, not not only are you not paying me, but you have cut my time and you asked me to go first now. And it was all these last minute changes that we had never agreed to. Which I knew beforehand, which is why I got blackout drunk by the time I showed up. <laughs> I remember it was the first and only time, hopefully, that I've ever gotten so drunk that I told a joke and then three minutes later told the same joke. <laughs> and I oh. was still someone who had done enough stand-up that I realized I was telling the same joke and I was like, oh, no. And, and the reason I bring it up is then the following week I did this fancy corporate show. And there I was very polished and I did very well, but you could see someone in the audience, who had recognized me from the show before, the open mic, and he had he still dismissed me. Even though I had done well in this show, he was like, no, I saw you, I saw you. Sometimes you tell jokes the same time. And, and that's the worst part about messing up and sometimes in shows, is that it'll create an impression forever within yeah. someone who shouldn't matter. But if you're an insecure artist, like many of us are, it totally matters. Yeah, first impressions count. But, you know, at, at the same time, you always have to remind yourself it doesn't, because, again, I did well that second gig and I got paid out of the way. So it was more <laughs> the idea that he really wanted to hang out with uh, my friends who I brought along with me. That yeah. 
meant I was stuck with him the whole night. Oh, shit. Yeah. When you were just saying you're doing some writing for TV at the moment. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Or is sure. I'm writing for... Well, I, I guess I can't say anything yet. But... Um, <laughs> sorry. As, as I realized, I was like, I don't know if... But uh, I'm writing for a sketch show for television. Well, you'll hear more about it as more of it comes out. But Yeah. Is this a different project than you were working on with Ed? Yes. Okay. Yes, it is a different project. Got we are still one. working on that one together That's well. going to be the best thing I ever saw i think because you guys have been working on this forever <laughs> that means nothing in terms of quality <laughs> you should know that me and ed knight are very lovely boys who will find ways to procrastinate on anything for <laughs> as long as we can um, how do you get that opportunity to write for tv so you know it, it's funny in 11 years in comedy i don't think many people have had a weirder time with the industry than i have but amy puller had this advice she wrote in her book which was always be nice to the comics because your real first time getting into the industry will be after doing comedy for 10 years. And then one of your friends will get famous enough to give you a job. Less true in the UK, for the record. Wow. Because you don't need 10 years. But for me, after 10 years, my friends started getting writing projects in the UK and in America. And that's how I got this current writing job. I had a different friend get to star in something. And he finally got enough clout that he could ask for writers. And then he brought me on board. And, you know, just it's just a lesson to always be nice to everyone. <laughs> yeah, that that's actually really good advice. Yeah. Uh, but also, more than that, it's you should be nice to your fellow comics because you guys will have... Even if you don't like any of their jokes, be nice to them <laughs> because you guys understand the world in a way no one else can. That you have chosen this dumb life path that mm. you love. And no one else will be able to understand how weird that life will be other than another comic. It's also quite a tough life in some ways, you know? No. I, Do you I agree? Listen, it, it, is, it is a tough life relative to the expectations put upon you by people with regular lives. It is not... Comics tend to dramatize the toughness of their life. Because it makes them feel better about their choice. The thing to remember is that although there will be aspects of comedy that are tough. I mean, you, the first part of this podcast is me being nervous that I'm not getting booked by the cool venues I want to get booked by. But <laughs> the thing to remember is that although money will not always be free-flowing with comedy, although your lifestyle will not always be as glamorous as you want it to be, at the end of the day, it's the life that allows you to go on stage and do comedy. And for that... The rest of it should be worth it. And if it's not, you should stop. Wow. That's a very black and white. <laughs> I, 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 I think we overcomplicate things. If comedy is making you unhappy, you should stop. I, I'll even get more serious for a second. I've been doing comedy 11 years. I have had close to a dozen friends kill themselves um, at this point. Uh, dozen? Eh, maybe only 10. <laughs> uh, guys, what a, what a drama queen. Uh, but uh, just 10. But like... um. They were really good people who let comedy overwhelm them in a way that I wish I had the chance to tell them to just quit because it's not worth your life. If it brings you a happiness and feels like a calling, you should stay in it. And if it doesn't, get out and go be happy because you die anyway. I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> That's what I do, guys. I end podcasts early. Uh, <laughs> oh, gosh. I showed up late and I just say something dark like that. So. Well, there's no response. I don't know what to say. But I, I, I think people feel trapped. What ends up happening is, is you do comedy for a long time and you wonder, can I go back? Can I do something else? How will I watch comedy ever again if I quit? And I think to remember is that your life is long uh, if you want it to be. And there are a lot of twists and turns. <laughs> and you are better off 
giving yourself a new start and a new opportunity than being unhappy doing something you don't love anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so on the flip side, I guess, sure. when we're talking about if, if comedy is not for you, get out of comedy if you're unhappy. What would the flip side be? So what advice would you give to aspiring comics, people who do want to get into comedy? Sure. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't mean to discourage that at all. If you're trying to get into comedy, by all means, start. I would recommend going to an open mic and just watching an open mic. I think sometimes comics get very nervous about their first time doing comedy because they watch Netflix specials or they go see a show at the Soho Theater or something fancy like that. And they see comedy done at a very professional level. And they wonder, how do I start? I, I recommend going to an open mic where the comics are amateurs, they're working out stuff, they're learning how to get good, and you will watch every open mic, and it'll be so hard for you to feel like you'll be the worst one there. Mm. Because there will be a few comics who will not be doing it much longer, who are going to do so terribly, that you're going to go, well, at least I won't be that bad. And sometimes it can give you the confidence you need to get started. And, you know, you can never truly judge how stand-up makes you feel until you do it. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I signed up uh, for one the 18th five minutes dying it's my first one ever because they're doing this course the solo theater mm-hmm. one but no, I've not actually done any stand up so I just thought I'd do it and I'm not gonna but you have to bring someone I hate bringers cause sure. I, I wanted to like fail in peace uh-huh. I thought that I would do like weird ones nowhere around central London where I don't know anyone and now I have to bring someone do you still go to bringers? Uh, yes I don't have to bring anyone though so I will often get asked to headline a bringer show or uh, do it and then i'll go there and work out new jokes and i guess it, it leads some credibility to the show overall so that the bringers feel less bad about especially only being there for their friend uh, i recommend this though for young comics uh, especially because i think bringers are much easier in london than they are in america bring each other which is to say rather than bringing a friend who you'd be wasting not necessarily wasting i don't want to be mean but um i know i have a lot of friends who are just starting to watch me do comedy again because they saw me in my first year of comedy, and it took them a while to come back. I remember I, I had a friend named Joe who watched me my first and second year of comedy, and he didn't see me again until my sixth year of comedy, where he went, oh, my God, you've gotten a lot better. And it's like, yeah, I, I hope so. Yeah. It's been four years since you last saw me. Like, of course I got better. But that was his experience after seeing me after two years was like, oh, he's funny, but I don't know if I want to see this again. Brutal. Uh, it's just life. Yeah. <laughs> so I would recommend if you have another friend who's a comic who didn't get booked on that night, ask them to be your bringer and then you'll be their bringer for another gig. And that way you guys pay each other back that way, uh, support each other, uh, but also you're not wasting any of your friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess it is hard because once they hear your jokes, like I would say I have friends in London, but not hundreds. No one wants to come to the same show for your five mm-hmm. minutes at like, you know, 10, 20 times. Absolutely. Exactly. And lastly, what advice would you give to your your teenage self if you could go back and give yourself one piece of advice? I would tell myself that nothing is set in stone. When I was a teenager, I was so depressed because I I had parents who really wanted me to be a doctor, who laid it out in very sensible terms, who sort of that life really terrified me because the idea of being a doctor meant that my whole life suddenly felt mapped out. That I would lead this life, that I would work in this way, and then, you know, I'd go to school for this amount of years, and I'd do a residency somewhere, and then I'd uh, specialize in something, then I'd do a fellowship in that specialty, I'd become a full-fledged doctor, I'd do the research, get married, buy a house, ha- uh, have a car, have kids, and then you die, right? Like, that's how it felt to me, the finality of it. 
And I wish I could tell him that one, that's not going to happen. You're not going to be a doctor. And thank God, I'd have been, I would have been a terrible doctor. But also that you get to decide the life you live. And you get to decide if you want to shake it up or not. Yeah. If you're in a rut, it's up to you to shake out of it. Do you have a plan? No. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, whatever plan I had uh, is constantly being shaken up by life. And that's one of the scary parts of stand-up. It's also one of the beautiful parts of stand-up that every day is different and every day forces me to think on my feet. Yeah. Where can people follow you if they want to keep up with what you're doing? Sure. Uh, you can add me on Facebook. My name is Sid Singh. Uh, my fan page is called Sid Singh Comedy. Follow me on Twitter at Mr. Sid Singh. Uh, Instagram at Looking for Sid. Uh, I just announced the tour dates on Facebook, so feel free to look up that. And if you would like to listen to the album, once again, it is on Spotify, and it's called Amazing Probably uh, by Sid Singh. Perfect. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thanks for having me. Thank you.